So we're in this series um, on, on unity, and we've been studying Ephesians, and like Matt sort of alluded to before, um, this was supposed to be a three-week series, and we had kind of been talking um, a few weeks ago about potentially a need to go sort of a fourth week, and, and it's because of sort of this hole that we felt like was there and what we were talking about. Not because there's a hole in Ephesians 4, but, um, but because there was, there was still something that we needed to talk about or the way that we needed to talk about what unity looked like um, in order to be specific enough that it was actually really helpful for people. You know, we've been talking about um, how we are the same, the ways in which God, sort of the basis for Christian unity is really theological. It's that God says, you are one. You are the same in these key areas. You believe in these things that are the same. I've formed you to be the same in certain ways. And so it is ultimately, first and foremost, because God tells us that we are made to be unified with each other, that we strive for unity together. But what Matt talked about last week was that that doesn't mean that we're all the same. That God actually creates us with a great amount of diversity, with gifts, a body made up of multiple, many different parts. And so uh, there's a reason why it seems like we're so different, even though we're called to live together in unity. But as we've been talking about this uh, week after week, I've still left with that question where I've gone, uh, but what does it look like practically to actually live this out? How does a person, a Christian, take the steps, and what are those steps, to uh, truly experiencing unity because of how much the authors of the, of the New Testament, uh, how much uh, words are spoken to the early church about the need for this thing called unity. Above any other instruction ap- apart from love each other, you have this call to be unified and to fight this draw, this pull towards separation and divisiveness. So if the, if the encouragement is given so much, if the charge is given so much, if this command is given so much for the people of the church to be unified, then how do we actually do it? What does that look like? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And as we talk about that, we're going to look not in Ephesians, but in 1 Corinthians, particularly because 1 Corinthians, so, uh, and if you want, you could turn there in your Bible, um, but we're going to be in, in the very beginning of it. Um, Ephesians is kind of an encouraging, positive, optimistic look at unity, how and why we are called together as one and what that looks like. 1 Corinthians is a little bit different. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by Paul to the church in Corinth, and it is written to them, and they are extremely divided. They've been divided by just about everything that there could be. They've been divided by theological arguments and debates. They've been divided by leaders and people that have come in and sort of divided them into camps. They've been divided by sin and all kinds of things going on in their own lives that selfishly have caused them to just harm themselves and each other and the good of the church. And so 1 Corinthians is not a letter written to a group of people who are doing a great job in this area. So it's a little, it seems a little negative, but what what we see in it is we see Paul very practically walking the church through what it looks like to actually have this thing called unity, what the steps of unity are. I want to look at verse 10 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, where Paul gives kind of his main encouragement to the people of how it is that they can have unity. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, 
but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I'm going to read that one more time. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul is saying to them, very simply, I want you all to agree. Well, good luck with that, right? I want you all to agree, and here's how you're going to be as unified as you need to be. The first thing he says to them is that you are to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He's, there's, there's not supposed to be any divisions among you. How do you do that? The first step to not being a group of people who are divided and split in all the ways that everyone outside the church is divided and split is first and foremost that you are to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, mind, you translate the word mind, he's talking about your way of thinking. The way that you think, the things that you're thinking about, basically what you believe in, what you've decided is true, what you believe to be true, you need to be united in that. And then you also need to be united, he says, in the same judgment. And no, he's not saying uh, that you need to have a common enemy, right? I think a lot of people misinterpret this and are like, good, let's all pick somebody and judge them. And if we all agree on who we should judge, then we'll be united in judgment. Surprisingly, that actually does bring a group of people together, we, we learn historically, right? Uh, in fact, it seems like finding a common enemy is one of the easiest ways to get a group of people together, at least for a little while, then they turn on each other, and that's a disaster too. So be united in the same mind, meaning agree upon what you believe in together, and also judgment, you translate this word, it means what you decide, the judgment that you make in a situation, what you decide, what your opinion is about a thing and the way to go. Some would even say sort of your, your purpose. So what I, the, the choices that we make together need to be unified and our minds need to be unified. Well, that's a pretty big thing to talk about. Well, he's kind of not talking about in every possible thing. But what Paul is saying is that the first thing that we do, if we really want unity, in fact, this is the key to having unity as a church, to not being as divided as those outside the walls of the church, and to fight the division that wants to and will want to rise up and grow within the walls of the church as well. We are to be of the same mind and the same judgment, which means the same choices, the same, uh, the same uh, decisions, even the same purpose. We are to make the same choices. What does he mean when he says be united by the same mind? What is it that we are to be united by in our minds and the things that we agree on? In chapter 2, he probably articulates this the best in verses 1 through 5. Paul says this to the church. He reminds them of something. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to know to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and, the pow and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says here, so Paul is a big deal, okay? At that time, now even more so, some would argue, right? Paul is a big deal. Paul's a smart guy. He's a genius. He's brilliant. 
okay? He had spent his life dedicated to honoring God by rooting out people with bad doctrine and heresy. He was a zealot. That was a group of people who were so passionate about God and about people believing and doing the right things that they used violence. And it was kind of considered okay. They were the most, the the first introduction we have of Paul um, is that Saul, when he's a bad guy, persecuting Christians in the early church because of his devotion to God. He then becomes a Christian and makes this, has this incredible influence on the foundation, the beginnings of the rise of the early church. Paul is brilliant. He is, seems to be very articulate. He is able to argue with Jews and debate Jews and Gentiles for the gospel. But he's not just getting in fights with people and then walking away feeling good about himself. Churches are actually starting. Leaders are being raised up in order to lead these churches. And then Paul's going on and starting churches in other places. He is successfully winning people over for Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles. Paul has a lot to be proud of, you could say. One would imagine that if Paul were to walk into your church and he were to begin talking, that that would be a very big Sunday. Everyone would come that week. And your minds would be blown and your heads would be blown by the things that he would say and the gifts that he would exhibit, that he would would show. And yet, that's not how he describes himself when he comes to them. He says, when I came to you, Brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So here's the idea, the the picture that we get of Paul coming to your church. It was a big, huge disappointment. Paul walked in, and he, he is Paul, and you're like, this is the guy? He's kind of almost hot, like a case of keyboard courage, you know? He writes, sometimes he actually says, why I'm writing in these bold words and these big words. He writes with conviction, he writes with passion and clarity, but it almost seemed like when he showed up and he was there with people in person, that they were surprised by his meekness, by his lack of polished uh, pr- presentation, It almost seemed like he was just a regular, normal guy. And he says to them, there's a reason that I strike you this way when I come and I'm amongst you. It's not lost on me, guys. I'm self-aware enough to know you're a little let down by what you're seeing here. But I came to you not for you to see the wisdom of a man, not for you to see the intellect of a person, not for you to see the effectiveness of a leader or the love of a person who loves better than anyone else and you should want to be like. I came to you with one message and one thing that I wanted you to focus on and understand and own and live out. And it was this. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When I showed up, I wanted you to know one thing and one thing alone, Jesus Christ and him crucified. When he says that we are to be of one mind, we are to agree upon the things that we believe and think, he is ultimately talking about, above all else, this thing. We are to be of one mind about this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus is to be the most important 
And his crucifixion and death and the resurrection found in him is the most important thing that we can talk about when we're together. Amen? amen. All right. This can be an amen sermon. You can give your heart to Jesus. You can follow him for 40 years. And guess what? When you get up, the only thing that you will have to boast about is Christ crucified. You wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror, you can leave the look in the mirror and say, look at what I've become. Or you can look in the mirror and say, Christ Jesus and him crucified. That is what gives me life. That is what matters the most in my life. That is the basis on which I stand. That is the most important thing and the foundation of this church is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says you are to be of one mind of that thing. And he talks about why that's hard. He says a a little bit earlier in in chapter 1 when he talks about this thing, he says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. This thing that's such good news that's so great that we should be embracing and loving and wanting and there's nothing about us that shouldn't get this at this point. He describes it as a stumbling block for the Jews and folly for the Gentiles. You're walking along, your life is going great, you're doing well, everything's going good. The, The Jesus Christ and crucified Jesus Christ and him crucified pops up and you trip and you fall and it messes you up because it is a stumbling block for you and the way that you want everything to be and the way you want to live your life. Jesus Christ and him crucified is not something that we so easily embrace like we think we do. It is something that kind of makes our life difficult. It kind of messes up the trajectory that we were on, both for the religious and the irreligious both for those who were convinced that they were walking in the right way and that God was very impressed with the things that they're doing, the upbringing that they had, the experience they have in the church. He says to those people, Jesus Christ and him crucified is a stumbling block. It messes up that walk and they got to start over and go, oh man, where am I going? What am I doing? I got to figure this out. To the Gentile, it's folly. To the Gentile, it's foolishness. To the irreligious, non-religious person, it's like, this doesn't even make sense. This sounds foolish and crazy to me, this thing that you're talking about. It is not quite as easy for us to embrace constantly, daily, as we think that it is. It is difficult to have our hope in Christ over the long haul, and we just want to move on much of the time. But we are united by our hope in Christ crucified. This is what gives us the same mind. The first step in having unity is this. Keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the first thing the first thing. You want to know how the church can be united. We're going to get real practical this morning. Number one, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen? Amen. Amen. That is the foundation. That is the basis. That is what everything else must be built on, is that is the thing that we continue to go back to. And when we disagree, which we will, if we don't, that's weird. When we disagree, we go back to that. And we say, we keep the main thing the main thing. We are to be united in mind 
the thing that we hope in. And the good news about that is that it draws us to the next point, which is, he says, your judgment or your choice or your decisions. You are also to be united in the choice, meaning the way that you choose to live that thing out. Because it's not just about what I believe up here, what I believe in my heart. What does that do for my life? Well, what the Bible tells us is that the only true right response from a person who has experienced the grace of God and the forgiveness from the gospel is to bring that to others. There is, there is this thing within us that when we've experienced God's grace, we desire for other people to have God's grace. We recognize, the Bible tells us, our theology points us to the fact that people who do not hear about the gospel and respond are condemned to be separated from God forever. We believe that we are first and foremost called together to bring the good news of the gospel to the world. That is what the Great Commission is that's given to the disciples when they start the church. The mission of teaching, of reaching the lost dictated how the people of the early church lived. It dictated how the people of the early church did church. It dictated the way that they lived their lives out, the way that they, the way that they chose to be living in an environment that was hostile to them and hostile to their gospel. They did not leave that environment. They stayed in that environment, and they said, we are going to reach the people of the Roman Empire with the gospel. It is not just being united, the main thing, in the cross of Jesus crucified. The main things are also that we are the place through which people will hear about the cross of Jesus crucified. We have been given this great commission. And so these are the things that we keep as the main things. These are the things that we go back to and the things that we focus on. If we think, if we keep these things a priority, other things will fall in line. How different does a society of people look in wartime versus peacetime? How different does a group of people look when they're embarking on a mission together? A mission that is bigger than them individually. A mission that is bigger than their comforts and their preferences and what they want in the lives they're building. It's a very different way of living than people living in peacetime. If we are able to keep the main thing the main thing, then we will have taken the first and the biggest step towards unity. Of course I care about these things, you say. Of course I care about Jesus Christ and cross, Jesus Christ crucified. Of course I care about the gospel. Of course I care about that more than anything else. Why would I be here? I wouldn't be here if I didn't care about that, you say. I became a Christian maybe a while ago. I started believing that then. I still believe that now. I have no problem with that. I'm not disagreeing with that. That's not the problem. Of course I want the lost to hear about Jesus. Of course I want to reach my neighbor and those in my family who, who have written them off and have decided that that's, that's something that's completely irrelevant to their life. Of course I want those things. Ed, you're missing the point. This isn't for me. This isn't what I need to do. This isn't the problem. One of the hard truths in life is how easily we let the things that are most important to us fade into the background and just become background noise. I'm convinced that of the people that I've known well in my life, that the overwhelming majority of them really did start out intending to make the person they were married to their biggest priority in their life. That they said these wedding vows, thought up every possible hypothetical scenario they could think of about things that would go wrong in the vows, because it was like, no, I really do want to stick this out with them. I really do believe that, that this person is worth giving my life for, giving my own happiness and comfort for, if that's necessary. 
I really do want that. I have the overwhelming majority of parents that I've known and talked to who have had children from in the beginning were like, I, I will do anything for this child and I want to, this is, this, is the, this is one of the most important things that I could possibly be doing in my life is focusing on what this child needs. The vast majority of people I know set out to be wonderful parents, to be devoted spouses, set out to pursue the thing they were passionate about, even at the cost of self-sacrifice and discomfort, took the job that they took fully intending to like, work their fingers to the bone doing that thing because they believed that it was what they were supposed to do. But life gets busy. The unexpected things happen. Things don't go as we plan and our priorities get distorted. Being a good parent, being a good spouse, being a good friend, being a good neighbor, being good at our job, being a good follower of Jesus is not as complicated as we often make it out to be. It is not a person standing at a chalkboard with like three chalkboards full of mathematical equations with X's and arrows and weird numbers that you don't understand. It's not complicated like that. It's stamina. It's what uh, theologians and people refer to as a long obedience in the same direction. Being good at being married is simple. Keep that thing the main thing. Because what happens? What happens as life goes on? As we are distracted by the good things in life, as we are discouraged and disheartened by the difficult things that we didn't expect to come along in life, is that thing that we fully intended to do really well becomes less and less of a priority to us. That person in our life becomes less and less of a priority to us. That thing that we were so dedicated to and willing to be sold out for gets muddled in with all the other things that are distractions in our life. It is so incredibly easy to let these things that we fully intend to do slip back. Can I just confess something right now? One of the things... One of my greatest fears in life is that I walk out into my backyard, maybe after work one day, and not that I hear a child screaming, not that I hear a window breaking, not that I see a tree falling on my house or something like that, but it is that I would hear the words, hey, Dad, will you come jump with me? Because I can tell you right now as an owner of a 15-foot trampoline that there is nothing I want to do less at the end of a day then jump on a trampoline, okay? There is no object that was created that is more effective at compressing the discs of your spine more efficiently than a trampoline. And it breaks my heart when I walk out and I see my daughter on the trampoline and she says, hey, Dad, will you come jump with me? And I go, oh, this is the last thing I want to do right now. But... You know, when we had kids, people were like, soak it up, soak it up, soak it up. You're going to be sad. Take lots of pictures. Do everything you wish to, whatever. You're going to look back and wish you had done it more. The last thing I want to hear when I walk by my son's room, long after he's supposed to be asleep, is, hey, Dad, can I ask you a question? The, the last thing that I want when I'm trying to sleep in the morning is a toddler literally crawling on my back while I'm sleeping. 
okay? I'm not talking sleeping in. I'm not talking eight hours here. That's, that's long gone into the world of fantasy. We're talking working on maybe six at, at best, okay? There are, uh, it doesn't get complicated. It's a matter of continuing to keep this thing in the forefront of your mind as this is important, more important than other things. And if we can do that, we do okay. This is why even though we say, oh, I understand that Jesus is important, that Christ crucified is how I have life. Oh, I understand that reaching the lost is the reason we're here as the church. Yeah, I get that. I get that. We can move on from that, but we can't move on from that. We have to keep talking about it, and we have to keep the main thing the main thing, because if we don't, it fades into the background, and we do the most dangerous thing ever. And, oh, man, this is so dangerous. How, the way that you know that the main things aren't the main things, these priorities aren't priorities anymore, is because you assume that you're doing them fine. Okay? That's like the number one way that you know that you have lost sight of that thing is you're like, oh, no, 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 I'm totally, no, 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 we don't need to talk about that. No, 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 I'm totally good there. No, I'm totally fine there. I assume. I've been doing it for a while. I'm fine. Let's move on to something else. You're probably not. You probably don't need to. How do you know you're keeping the main things the main things? Easy. You are desperately seeking God's help to do those things. You are coming to God and saying, God, would you help me continue to keep this relationship at the forefront as I'm supposed to. God, would you continue to give me the stamina and help me to continue to show my child what it looks like to love you? God, would you continue to, would you give me a heart for the lost because I don't have it? Would you give me the ability to have the humility to recognize that I need Jesus just as much today as I did years ago when I first met him? If we aren't asking God for his help, feeling desperately in need, we probably have assumed that we're fine in the things that are most important. And that's how we know. I, I confess that my heart does not break for the lost as it should. I confess that too often my identity... My identity is wrapped up in, in the position I have, in the, the comfort that I've experienced, in, in the familiarity and, and, and being known by people in the church rather than in Christ himself. I confess that I am often more attached and more in love with Christianity than I am with Christ himself. I confess that the idea of Jesus Christ crucified is still a stumbling block for me. I still find myself stumbling over it and wishing that I didn't have to need to depend on it. The first step is to keep the main things the main things. And the great news is that the second step is not what we often think it is. The second step is to keep caring about the other things. You see, one of the reasons why we felt like we have to get really practical talking about this is because as we talked to so many people the last few weeks about unity, uh, who have heard about it and talked about it before, read about it in the Bible, had conversations with Christians, tried hard to do that thing called unity. One of the things that we run into is it often just tends to be uh, this idea that you're, the way that you have unity is just to stop caring about stuff, right? Like that's, that's what it's code for. It's just stop, stop caring about things. Stop worrying about things. Stop getting worked up about things. Don't worry about that stuff. 
right? And it feels almost like this call to unity is really just a call to apathy. Some would even say that like Christians are supposed to be just so detached from everything that that's how we have it, is that we just don't care about stuff. But that's not true. That's not what we see in the Bible. Because if we keep the main things, the main things, then we as Christians are the best possible group of people to care about all the other things. Because we have this thing called priorities. We have this thing called perspective. And because we can see what's most important, then we can care about the other things going on around us. We can care about both sides of every issue. We don't have to only care about one. We can make an effort to see and to reach out to others more than others can because our hope isn't in that issue and the answer that we have for it. Our hope is in something bigger. And in the world, when you don't have a hope in something bigger, when you don't have Christ Jesus and Him crucified, when you don't have a mission that dictates the way that you live and go about your life and your interactions with this world, then all you've got is all these other issues and these other things. And they will divide you. Let's get really controversial here. You ready? Government overreach and the loss of personal freedoms is absolutely something that we should care about. It is. And safety and health, trusting scientific authorities, critically thinking about what that is and what those are, being willing to go the extra mile for your neighbor than you would go for yourself are also things that we should care about. We should care when we learn and see things that open our eyes to injustice around us. I should care when, I, when, it is, when, I, when it's brought to my attention that sex trafficking exists in my own town. I should care about that and it should break my heart. And when people tell me that they experience racial inequity, that should, that should bother me and it should break my heart and I should care about that thing as well. We also live in a society where it seems like every 10 minutes there's something new that I should care about. And I should care about that. What? I know, it's getting confusing and complicated. But again, the default, we should just care. I should ask myself, why am I worked up about this thing? Why is this thing an issue? Is this something that I'm supposed to, uh, there's always something I'm supposed to be outraged by. There's always something that I'm supposed to be upset about. And as, as a Christian, I'm supposed to think and care about the why and the what a little bit more than others might. We should care about the personal freedoms that we have as people living in America. We should care about the rights that we have as Christians living in America. That should matter to us. We should also care about letting America not become the kingdom that we serve, but letting the kingdom of God become the kingdom that we serve and stay the kingdom that we serve. And we should care about and recognize that it's easy, it was easy for people in the early church to serve Rome more than they served the church, especially if they did well in Rome. We should care about our right to decide things for ourselves, to be represented by people for ourselves. But 
we should also care about choosing to forego some of our rights for the sake of our Christian brother, because that's what it is to be a Christian, is to literally choose to not do all the things that we're free to do. Christians are not called to be unengaged from politics and and secular life and and the governing world. We are called to be people who care about those things and are engaged with those things, but we're called to not be people whose hope is in those things and is wrapped up in those things. We should care enough about the music in the church to do it well. We should. We think God likes bad or mediocre music. We should care about that. We should care about the music that we sing and that we worship to being biblical. We should care about the words that we sing, about the focus being on God and not just on the people that play the instruments and not just on the styles that we grow attached to and accustomed to. But we should also be willing to ask the question, how much do I care about those things? Having been to many different churches in my life, I can say one of the hardest things is that the more that I've enjoyed and appreciated worshiping in one church, the harder it is to go worship in the next place. I get kicked out of a lot of churches. (laughs) Things, theological issues matter, lots of them. The end times, the signs leading up to them, church governance structures, speaking in tongues, prophecy, abstinence from certain kinds of things because they're considered unhealthy, even if they're not unlawful. The role, gender roles, people in leadership in the church and in families and in homes, these are all things that matter. We are not called to only care about the main things and then just stop caring about everything else. We are called to care about other stuff but to always have it in perspective to that which matters most, which is Christ Jesus and him crucified and the fact that we are called to reach the lost. We can't let the other things get in the way of those two things. We can't let the other things drown out those two things. And most of the time, the division happens within the church. The division and disunity happen within the church. It's because these other things, any of these other things, any of the other things that you might be thinking of that you're like, please, I hope he doesn't talk about that. I really don't want to deal with having to leave this church right now. Whatever that thing is, if it's not those first two things, then it's not the main thing. And the main thing is what unity is found in. I'm done asking why, God, have you let these things divide your church? And I'm now asking how, God, can we simply be a church that is not divided by these things? How, God, can we be a church that isn't divided by the same things that divide everyone out there and many other churches? The first step is to keep the main thing the main thing, and the second step is to keep caring about the other things and not to just be apathetic and ambivalent towards them. It, is, it, it makes sense that we would disagree. It makes sense that we would not agree about these things. But what we must agree upon is that Christ Jesus and him crucified. What we must agree upon is that we're called to reach the lost. And if we can continue to agree upon those two things, then the other things are not the main thing. And we can be united. 
no matter what's going on in the world around us. Something interesting that we read here that I want to go back to as we kind of wrap up. Paul says this, I appeal to you brothers. And you hear that, you pass right by it, you're like, he's always appealing. People are always, that's what this is, right? It's always, I appeal, I exhort, whatever. There's something interesting in the language here that I realized that I was, as I was studying this passage this last week and I'm reading commentaries about it and looking at the way people have interpreted this, one of the things that comes up again and again is the fact that Paul's tone here with this church is very different than the tone that he had uh, with the church in Ephesus. That Paul is, um, he's uh, appealing to them and it says that he's exhorting and encouraging them but what he's not doing is he's not commanding them. And there's a reason why he's not commanding them. It's because he recognizes that his authority is in question. Paul is writing to a church, and if you read 1 Corinthians, a lot of the book, it's like, dude, why are you so defensive? Are you insecure or something? Did you just have a bad week, Paul? Like, it's okay. You don't have to convince us. He is going over and above, trying to say to them, listen, I'm not making money off you guys. This is not doing good things for my life. I have no false motives. What could you possibly point to? Did I say this? Did I say this? No, no, no. He's like, listen, he's basically trying to convince people, just listen to me and trust me that I'm actually speaking things that are actually, this is the way that God wants for it to be. But what happens in situations where disunity and division rise and grow is that the question of authority immediately begins to be an issue. And so what would happen is that someone like Paul would come in and he'd be like, guys, I have to talk to you about what's going on in your church. But they'd be like, eh, who are you? Who are you to talk to us about this thing? Why? Because when the things that are not the main thing become the main thing, we then believe and listen to whoever it is that represents that thing. And back then, it used to be, it happened when someone came into a church and they began teaching a group of people. They began taking them aside saying, hey, you got to do that. Hey, do you know about this? And hey, are you aware of this? And do you realize this thing? That's not even what we have to do anymore. We don't even need that to happen. We just have to Google. That's all we got to do. You go on the internet, you Google. You look something up, and there's an expert on that thing. There's a person who's written a book about that thing. There's people writing articles and writing things, writing on blogs and everything else. There are people who speak to us about these other things, and as those voices begin to be more and more elevated in our mind, they begin to drown out the voice that's supposed to be representing the main thing. And so you have Paul, a guy who is appealing to them, encouraging to them, saying, Brothers, listen, I know you don't even see me the way that you used to see me. And the reason that I bring this up and I go back to this little point, even though it will seem incredibly self-serving, and I'm very self-aware and I can see that, is this is every pastor that I've talked to in like the last year and a half. Every pastor I've talked to in the last year and a half is going like, I can't compete with 30 hours of cable news, internet, and friends. I can't compete with it. It used to be that people lived in these small towns or something, and it was like you came to church and you heard about the Bible for like an hour or two hours or three hours, you know, because you came during the week and stuff like that. And then you had a couple of other relationships in your life that you processed that thing with. Now, more and more pastors that I talk to are like, the difficulty that I confront is the fact that I don't have the authority that I had before. Because there's so many other competing voices and different types of authority. And all that a person has to do is go, yeah, I don't think so. And that's it. 
And so I talk to many pastors who are often discouraged and confused, and it's not because, and I know it'd be easy to think, it's because they just, wanna, they just want people to listen to them and not ask any questions. They just want people to fall back in line. They just want people to do whatever they say. That's not it. It's because their hearts are breaking for people who they see wandering away from the main thing, and they say, I just desperately want to bring people back to the things that God wants them to be brought back to, and they won't listen to me. I just don't know how. Now, most of you know what this is like with people in your own life, right? You have members of your family. You have people that you're friends with that you just go, oh, no, I don't even think I want to begin thinking about how I might talk to them because all they have to do is go, nope, sorry. Matt said it last week very well. He said it very well. He said, we are convinced that we know the way they already think. We're more concerned with just getting them to see what we see in them than actually understanding them and being open to them, right? This is why it's easy for us to go and look for other sources of information and things like that. People who are better at articulating things. People who are better at arguing and defending for things than even we are. And then just sharing those things around with each other. It's easy to find that stuff out there. Paul is saying to them, he is saying, I appeal to you. Even though he has planted churches and even though he has given his life for the sake of that, the basic simple truth of the fact is that at this point when he comes to the church and says to them, I want you guys to focus on the main thing, all they had to do was go, no, I don't think I want to listen to you anymore. So here comes the most self-serving sermon point that I will ever give in a sermon ever. And if you're visiting, I don't do this every week, although maybe I will. Listen to your pastor. If you want to leave the church, fine. Just listen to the pastor wherever you go, okay? This is the way it's supposed to work. It really actually is supposed to work this way. It is that, it is that I come and, and you either look at me and you go, this guy does not know what he's talking about when he's talking about the Bible, or this guy has got really messed up motives and is totally untrustworthy. And if that's so, you should be gone. And if not, then you should listen. Try to, try to make it entertaining. I'm, I've been trying to get them shorter. <laughs> I, I think there's a reason why Paul is feeling fairly powerless as he is encouraging a church that's experiencing disunity. And I'm not talking to our church about this right now because I think we're rampantly filled with disunity from left to right. I'm talking about it because our world is filled with disunity and because we would be naive to think that that does not creep within the walls of the church. So listen to me because what I want to do is I want to gather us around what is most important and what is true. I want us to gather around that and I want to get us as close into that as we can And then we are in the perfect position to talk about the other things, to think about and care about the other things. We are the group of people who can care because we have perspective. Have you ever sat around like a a fire pit or something with a group of people and the night gets colder and the night gets colder and so you get closer and closer into the fire and next thing you know you're practically touching knees and it's a little bit awkward? This is what the gospel is for us. 
We gather around it, and the more that we do, and the colder and more hostile it gets outside, we move in closer. We move in closer. We don't huddle up like a bunch of sort of like inwardly focused people wanting to live in a bubble. It is that that truth becomes warmth and life for us, and we find ourselves having to go back to it again and again. This is what we gather around. It is what Paul points out, the gospel itself, the truth about Jesus crucified in 1 Corinthians 15. I thought I had a slide for this, but I didn't, so I'll just read it. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I want to close by reading these four verses. As we seek to uh, have unity together and to have the kind of unity that will withstand any circumstances and anything that the world throws at us, the way that we will do that is by being a group of people who continue to gather around, point back to, and agree upon the things that matter most. And this is what they are. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He then goes on to list all of the many people who witnessed Jesus being resurrected. Paul says in the beginning of this, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and on which you are now being saved, which means the thing that you got in the past, the thing that you stand on in the present, and the thing that will continue to save you moving forward. If we can focus on this, if we can agree upon this, and if we ever stop focusing on this and agreeing upon this at this church, that is when things fall apart. That is when a church has gone astray. That when it has lost sight of those two things. And so that is what we focus on. As we take communion this morning, as we continue to worship together, I want us to ask this question to ourselves, not about our friends and not about the world outside, to say, is Christ Jesus and him crucified? Is that what my hope and my life is found in? Do I have a heart to reach the lost? Do I see my life and my hope and my worth tied to Christ himself or is it in other things? Asking God to help us take those things that we started with and put them in the forefront of our mind yet again if they've wandered to the background to say it is about priorities and these are mine. Let's pray. Father, you are such a good God because in your word, these words that are thousands of years old, you speak to exactly where we are at now. You speak to the church today. Father, I confess that my heart does not break for the lost as it should, that it often falls from the forefront of my mind, Lord.
that I often get caught up in so many other things. I confess that I really would like to be able to stand on my own merits and my own accomplishments and who I am as a person now at this point in my life instead of needing Jesus every day, Lord. God, because our hope is in Jesus and nothing else, we can hold loosely everything else. Would you help us to do that today? It's in your name that we pray, amen.